0: It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira.
1: Will it be a magical time in Las Vegas again? As long as magicians begin performing here again, we've got a shot. And my guest is leading the way. Murray the Magician is back performing in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana, Las Vegas, Thursdays through Sundays at 4 p.m. For ticket information, go to TropLV.com. And for everything about Murray the Magician, go to MurraySawChuck.com. You can follow him on Twitter at MurraySawChuck and also on Instagram. In fact, he's on 19,422,000 platforms. Murray, welcome to the show. (laughs) How
2: you doing, Iris? Good good to hear your voice and talking to you. How you been?
1: Good. Doing well. And I know it's a a challenging time for all of us, but particularly for performers, in particular for magicians. So I wanted to talk to you about that and, and the challenges of performing when you're not quite in the same situation as you would be under normal circumstances. So your audience levels will have to be lower for safety purposes, et cetera. How do you handle all that?
2: It's different, you know. You just take it day by day. I believe, you know, it's one of those things where we never expected this to happen to us any time in our lifetimes. I don't think. And I think, I think the key is to be being relevant. You know, trying to cope, and that, I think that's how you succeed in anything instead of just sticking your boots in the ground going, I'm not changing, take it or leave it, I think you do get left in the dust a little bit. And I think by changing, you can move with the times. Whether you're doing Zoom shows or you're doing shows like I'm doing where they're live, where you need that 25-foot distance and then everyone else is six feet apart wearing their mask. You know, you couldn't, in a comedy show and a magic show, you couldn't put people in more restraints than a mask to help them not laugh as much. You know, you want them <laughs> to laugh as much as they want. But you know what? We want to be safe. And we want to still have a good time and live our lives because life is short. So it's, it's a happy medium, you know what I mean?
1: It is. And one of the things about you that I've always admired is you have that ability to adapt. And so it's not just staying relevant. It's really adapting to changing circumstances. And that includes technology. You were one of the very first to embrace social media right off the bat. You did all kinds of stuff on YouTube, etc.
2: Yeah, I was very lucky. You know, I mean, a change as you get older, as most of us know, is never easier because you kind of used to setting your ways as you get older. But I think that's the key to, you know, reinventing yourself and moving forward and staying in the game. And I don't care whether it's entertainment or you're a doctor or a lawyer or a construction worker. If you don't understand new practices and principles, I don't think you can advance and have that long career. You know, you look at people like Elton John or Madonna, people who've really reinvented themselves, even Lady Gaga, and she's just at the beginning of her career, you know. I think you really have to see that, and I think this is one more step to becoming relevant. And also, it, it makes you stand out a little more because there's a lot of acts out there that don't want to change and don't want to, to, you know, be relevant or change with the times. And unfortunately, it's okay with me because, uh, you know, it's a competitive world and it does take a lot of work and time. And it isn't comfortable, but, it's the way we are right now. If you do want to work, you got to go with go with the flow.
1: Yeah, and you've always been practical in your approach to things as well. So whether it's entertainment or any other kind of business, you always take it on hands-on and you figure out a way to make it work.
2: I think so. You know, I think I never have a problem putting on my work boots and get my hands dirty in any metaphorical aspect of entertainment or life. It never bothers me and also makes you more educated about things as well. And I think it makes you a little more humble as well and And uh, at least from the entertainers I'm talking to in this world right now, Vegas, we really appreciate our jobs. I mean, we appreciate them before. but now we really do, let alone having your own show on the strip and getting to walk on stage, but really getting to gig and perform not and not work at a regular nine to five you know corporate job, which nothing's wrong with that. but as an artist, that's just not our makeup.
1: Right. I already have come up with your new image. For the next reinvention, if you're ready for this, <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. Lay it on me. Here we go. Ball. I'm excited. Bald. Oh,
2: perfect. <laughs> I love it. It'll be a lot easier, a lot less hair product, a lot, a lot less hair color.
1: Do you think that that your brand, one of your brands, is the, is the hair? So, do you think you'll still keep that no matter what else you do?
2: I think so, but then again, I look at other acts like you know Steve Harvey and Howie Mandel. They had cool hair you know what I mean, uh, throughout their careers. And all of a sudden, they hit a point in their career where, where their name and their brand was so strong, they almost could do anything. And then Howie got rid of his hair, you know what I mean? And, and so did uh, Speed. They shaved it and that. And they look great. Right. And that's their, that's their brand now. So I think it can be can be something, you know what I mean, it would make your old Brenner very proud. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and also, here's my other part two of my suggestion for you. So now that when you reinvent yourself by going bald, you do it in a magical setting. So in other words, it becomes an illusion. Your hair is gone. It disappears.
2: Exactly. It could be the next hook. Honest to God, it'd be very funny. I always told somebody, like, and it'd be very funny if I wore a skull cap, comb my <laughs> hair down, and then put a you know a wig on top of that. Right at the very end of my show, so the ladies, thanks so much. Take my bow, rip my rip you know rip a hairpiece off, stick it to the wall as they walk off stage and go good night. what an ending. I mean, people would be just waiting for that. But the problem with that is the one trick pony. Once you've seen it, you can never unsee that moment. You know, it's almost something you'd have to do on a TV show or something large exposure. Because if you did it every night, it would. People would already know what was coming. Oh because yeah, of just, I know, would, social media
1: exactly. I would see it as a one-time thing, but it would yeah, yeah, be really very be funny it. though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How important is having a sense of humor when you're a magician and you're performing on the strip?
2: Oh, I think you have to. I mean, but you're talking to somebody who I always see everything in light, and I, I I make humor of everything. You know, and not everything. You know, there's certain things that just aren't funny in life, but I do look at things that way. And so I, I think, but, you know, once again, I, the, the more serious magicians that are out there, the funnier I can become just because a lot of times I mock or make fun of that because it's my business and my world, so I can get away with it, you know? Sure. And I'm just, when you look like a Q-tip walking on stage, you cannot be serious. <laughs> just, people aren't going to buy it. And I'm also the type of person, when I'm on stage, I know what you're thinking. So if I say, if I'm holding a bag and the bag I'm telling you is empty, I know you're already thinking it's not empty. Like, I know that. And I'll (laughs) I'll even call that out on myself because I think that that's part of being a personality. It's also part of having an audience go with you and that that you're taking them along for the ride, not against them, especially in magic because people always think, oh, I don't be fooled or tricked because people don't.
1: Do you see yourself or the act as breaking the fourth wall a little bit?
2: Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to do that. I, even on television, you know, Bob Hope was big on that way back in the day. He was one of the first ones to ever do that. He'd be doing a, a love scene or something, and then he'd turn the camera, you know, and actually share his <laughs> thought. It was something that became very popular with him back in the, you know. Yeah, and 50s. George,
1: George Burns did it with Gracie right. Allen on his TV show sure as well. So Yeah,
2: so it was kind of a fun thing. So I think if it's done at the right time, it's wonderful. I mean, my breaking the fourth wall a lot of times is me talking off the mic. That's the one reason I use a handheld mic not a lavalier mic, which is attached to your body, because I can talk off the mic and still have the audience hear me, but it's a different it's a different feel when they hear you off the mic because it sounds like they're not supposed to hear something that you're saying. Right, you're
1: bringing you know, them into your confidence, in a sense,
2: yes. by doing and that. That makes, yeah. A, yeah. that makes a huge yeah. difference, and it works. It works to my advantage, and you can use humor in that, so I use that a lot.
1: And there's a fine line, too, Murray, between breaking the fourth wall and yet revealing how a trick is done, because I know that there was, Controversy over years ago with the masked magician, who I mentioned to Fielding that it would be a perfect time for the masked magician to come back with COVID
2: being around. Oh, totem boy, he's got the right mask, so he's set. There he's you safe go. and healthy. Yeah, there you go. I know. But you I know, he was very successful.
1: Yeah, but you don't reveal illusions so much as you just simply let people into the laugh or into the moment.
2: Exactly, and a couple of tricks I will let them know just because they're funny tricks, and if you know, if you're. Seven years old and read a back of a cereal box, I'm sure you probably would know how they work. So if I can get a good laugh out of it more than applause out of a trick, I will disclose a trick. If it if it's moving the comedy and the show forward, you know what I mean? Yeah. Why not? You know what I mean? Because nowadays with internet and all of stuff, you can find almost out anything. So if you can still be entertaining. You know, at the end of the day, and I've always had this on my coffee mugs, and I still do it. So don't fool them, entertain them. I've always been about. I don't care whether you're a guitar player, or harmonica player, ventriloquist, juggler, magician. The bottom line is, entertain people. And I don't care how you do that, but if they're entertained, they're laughing, having a good time. You're doing your job.
1: Yeah, that's a good philosophy. You mentioned about the cereal box, and I was curious about when the first time you discovered an interest in magic, and how, what were the circumstances?
2: I think it was watching. I mean, something that was really in my mind was back when I was like seven or eight years old, and David Copperfield vanished the Statue of Liberty. You know, he was very famous on TV, the only magician in my era that was on TV. You know, Doug Henning was starting to go away, and uh, which is, he was obviously famous in the 70s. Sure. But David was really... And he also tied in other stars, so he became a bigger star by tying in other stars, because on ABC in the early days of his magic show, his whole special revolved around the new stars on ABC that year or CBS or whatever network he was on, and he tied them into his tricks. So it was basically a paid advertising of all the new sitcoms coming out that year with their stars along with Magic and David Copperfield. It was very smart, very brilliant.
1: So it wasn't the cereal box. It was really television.
2: It was television, yeah. And, you know, you see the, the little tricks in the back of boxes, or even back in the day when you got Cracker Jack boxes, when you actually have, you used to have toys in those things. Right. You know, there's little things, little tops, and little stuff, you know, whistles. You kind of learn things indirectly through just fun eating items, cereal or snacks. And so on the back of those cereal boxes or special care, whatever the heck brand deal they had with them, they'd have the odd thing. Like a jumping elastic band where you put, you know, elastic band around two of your fingers or it looks like it's around two of your fingers. And then you do a move and it hops to the other two fingers. You know, that was one of the ones I learned off the back of a box and stuff like that. Or they used to have even even Cracker Jack things. Or Bazooka Joe's used to have something in them as well, like cartoons. So back in the day, candy also had more than just the candy when you bought it. You had a little joke or a trick or something to go with it.
1: Did you ever get a chance to, once you got hooked into magic, did you have that urge to go to visit a magic store?
2: Yeah, and when I first started, my aunt and uncle took me down there in downtown Vancouver, Canada, where I'm from. And there was one, a magic shop called Ken's Illusionarium. And it's not there anymore. He moved up to northern British Columbia but he still has a magic shop online now. But you walked in, it was everything you dreamed of. It was almost like going to Disneyland for the first time when you walk in those gates and it's just sensory overload. You hear the music, you see Mickey Mouse, you see the fire truck, the train, you know, and you're just like, I can't believe this is an actual place that exists like this as a child. And so as a magic shop it has that same wow factor. You walk in and there is just so many cool things that do things and then of course there's usually a magic demonstrator or a magician behind the counter pitching you something and of course <laughs> right. it's you know spend deck or cups and balls so some of the beginning things that work well that are lower price point but they sell for a lot of money you know and uh and that's what they sell you and, and i walked in there and i think my first major trick that i thought was major that was actually on television was the chinese linking rings which I can't stand anymore. But uh, <laughs> as a beginner, you know that that was a pretty cool thing. You know, two solid <laughs> rings piercing each other. You know, right. so, you know. So yeah, so I, I that's how I started, and I've been joined the magic club. They said we well, should really join the magic club, and I joined the Vancouver Magic Circle, which there's many circles all around. One of the most famous one is the Magic Circle in London, England, which Paul Daniels, a very famous magician, was in that one, and, and many others. But um, but yeah, so I joined a magic club, and then once you have that outlet. Now you you know you have your references to getting good tricks or jobs or how you actually try to succeed in in magic,
1: and then you had to decide how your style would be right because that's you're yeah. not you're not the typical magician which is why you're so popular.
2: Yeah, well, I never liked anything normal. You know, I was, and I think that's an artist to begin with on any, every level. I always liked being a little off center. You know, I grew up watching Liberace and Lucille Ball and and Howard Stern, which is obviously a different generation, but. People that all had a very strict brand. Lucille Ball, as you know, and most know that, you know, her hair was never red. You know, she colored it perfectly, so she had that look with the big eyes and the red lipstick. And she basically was a character of herself. And so was Liberace with the candelabra and the suits and the gems. And, of course, the older he got, the more flamboyant he got, which just worked for his brand. So those are the people I grew up on. You know, and I grew up on Lawrence Welk, you know, and everyone on there had a brand. There was the accordion player. There was the champagne girls. You know, there was him who did the one and the two and a bubble, you know, all that. But he always had those certain brand qualities. So I kind of grew up like that. And I thought, well, before I'm famous, I'd like to at least look like I'm somebody. So at least you'll go, well, that guy looks like somebody. I don't know who he is, but he has a look. And so I started creating that with always wearing blue when I was on stage, my dark framed glasses, which I do need to see, you know. And then I started messing my hair up a little bit because it wasn't normal. It looked weird, and, and people would talk about it. And, and that's, that's what you kind of want people doing.
1: But isn't you know? at the same time, though, Murray, whether it's weird or not to the audience, to you it felt somewhat authentic because you were comfortable with it because you were going to be in that costume and in that hair and in the glasses on a oh, yeah. nightly, nightly basis, right?
2: Yeah, and I, I I designed it to fit me. You know, a lot of people, look. You know, I looked at that point, I was looking at Rod Stewart because he was in his probably late 40s at that point, early 40s, and he always had his hair messed up and um david bowie had his hair messed up and all these cool artists and i thought well that's a cool look and i you know i could pull that off and i even tried it for halloween once that's when i really committed to it because i did it for halloween once it's just i didn't know what i wanted to go as so i dressed up just weird looking and i put an upside down triangle on the back of my jacket which was a secret message meaning be like well what are you and i go look at the back of my jacket It's like well it's an upside down triangle i don't get that and I said, we have to guess. Well, the guess symbol for jeans was the upside down triangle <laughs> for guess. So we just put, this, me and my buddy did it. We put these white upside down triangles on black jackets. We all wore black. We spiked our hair up and we colored like orange and green. And that was it. And so my friend was like, you know and the girls that were, I was hanging out with you look kind of cute with your hair like that. I said, well, you know, maybe I can look cute, you know, the the 1st of November, not October 31st too, you know? And so I started doing it more regularly and it became, you know, look for me, it worked. That's
1: great. Let's take a break. My guest, Murray the Magician is performing in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana, Las Vegas, Thursdays through Sundays at 4 p.m. For ticket information, go to troplv.com and for everything about Murray the Magician, Go to MurraySawChuck.com and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at MurraySawChuck. We'll be right back.
0: We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. Come discover a world of possibilities, a world of wonder, a world carefully curated with interactive, hands-on experiences that put the unique needs of children to play, explore, Belong and learn right
1: where they should be, and that's first. Discovery Children's Museum, our kids first. For more information, please visit
0: discoverykidslv.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira.
1: Welcome back. I'm talking with Murray the Magician, performing in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana Las Vegas, Thursdays through Sundays at 4 p.m. For ticket information, go to TropLV.com. And for everything about Murray the Magician, go to MurraySawChuck.com, and you can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at MurraySawChuck. And Murray, do you ever speak slow? Never.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't think I've ever asked you that question. I just thought, I know just thought of it.
2: <laughs> I know that. I was trying to get so much in. That's the thing. I'm so used to working with unions. <laughs> and you can on time. If, if you have a 50-minute show and you realize you're running out of time, but you still want to do the material, you just start talking quicker and hope to God get it all in.
1: <laughs> you mentioned yeah. earlier about your aunt and uncle taking you to a magic shop. Was your mom supportive of your decision to go into magic full-time?
2: Yeah, I, my mom, mom and dad were both very supportive. You know, my dad worked for the railway. Right. mom was a legal secretary, stayed at home, you know, raised me once I was born. Um, and my, and my aunt and uncle, they both worked. You know, My uncle's my dad's brother. He worked for the railway as well. And, yeah, they were supportive. They bought me my first magic kit along with my parents for my birthday. And then from then on, they kind of encouraged it. So it was, once again, it was something nice that they could buy me as a gift that I really wanted. Because sometimes after a while, I had everything growing up. I was very lucky. I wasn't rich, but I wasn't poor. And so something that I had an interest in like that at a young age, that was kind of a cool gift to buy. It was really magic so, so it it's kind of a nice, and they weren't that expensive. So it's a nice gift to buy somebody if there's an interest.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Have you thought about making, in honor of your dad, maybe making a train disappear?
2: No, well, I did that, of course. I did that on America's Got Talent. You know? <laughs> exactly. And that's, yeah, and that's why I did that, you know. And I'm glad he got the steam. It's been gone for five years now. And, of course, a lot of people know he passed away at 83. But he had a great life and very supportive, and I'm really glad I got the beginning years of my career when I was somewhat successful for him to see that, because that's I think as a parent and as a kid looking at, to a parent, you kind of want to prove your parents proud a little bit, and you hope that you can do enough within your lifetime for their lifetime to see it.
1: No, absolutely. When you decided on your look, and that was your decision, how, how to make that look work, On the magic side, were you looking at any particular magicians to model yourself after, not in terms of presentation, but more in terms of specific illusions?
2: No, well, not really. I mean, um, more, yeah, my look, that was all my own doings. I wanted to stand out. But I think growing up, first of all, you kind of of mock or model who you look up to. So I think everyone wanted to be Copperfield for a while because he was just bang on the money. He was trendy, good-looking guy, very successful. But then, as I grew older, I really liked looking at the comedy magicians. And there was a comedy magician in England I loved. His name's Tommy Cooper. And he actually died on stage. Like, died, not died, meaning he was horrible. He actually died. People thought it was an act because he was a comedian. And that's how he went. That's the way, I mean, that's how he died. That was the end of it. And he always wore a fez hat on his head. He was kind of shaped more like an eggplant. You know, a little bit overweight, but a tall man. And he did these great, great jokes. And his humor was brilliant. And I looked at him as I got older. I was a Cardini, which is another magician. That was more of a serious magician, but he always acted as if he was either drunk or confused. So when he produced cards or produced cigarettes or coins, he was surprised. The same time the audience was, which is kind of hard because obviously it's him controlling it. Right. But he was, but he's one of my favorite acts, uh, Cardini. And it was once again, it just took that normal uh, god persona that magicians try to sell, which is not my style. I don't care for it to a different level and made it really characteristic and, you know, enjoyable. You know
1: did, I mean? Yeah. Did you find as you developed in the industry and you found your voice that you also became interested in the history of magic or the history of magicians, meaning those that had gone on a hundred years ago, Houdini and those kind of guys?
2: I did, yeah, as I got older, because you're always curious about things, and so I really, I, as I got older, I really did, did enjoy history of entertainment, especially the old Hollywood and stuff. I really got a, a kick out of it, and I just, I just was you know wondering, how did these people end up where they were? And so I read a lot of autobiographies as a kid as well, and so that got me into the history of everything. And then I was lucky enough years down the road to be here in Vegas with a friend and The Pawn Stars. I just got off America's Got Talent, and then of course I've been on their show for about 15 seasons now as the magic expert on there. And I got more into the history of magic because of my title on that show and the items we were bringing on. So that expanded my magic knowledge as well because I had to, you know, I had to learn more about it. Even though, you know, you can't just know everything about history; like your mind just can't always retain retain all that stuff. But it's it's one of those things where now I, I really know a lot because of the last. 10 years
1: oh, yeah, show. absolutely. But yeah. prior prior to that, you were already interested in some of the greats of magic. But oh, being, yeah. on, being on the Pawn Stars show, you were not forced to, but it made sense from a business standpoint to really research a lot more illusions and personalities in the magic world.
2: Oh, 100%. It really yeah. did. And it made it enjoyable as well because now I had a reason to do it as well, not just for my own knowledge, but because it was being used for something actually really cool, you know, as as well as the exposure and everything else along with that.
1: Yeah. Do you think you could have an exclusive announcement on this show? Because you mentioned Tommy Cooper and he died on stage. Are you prepared to die on stage? Yeah,
2: (laughs) but I'd like to give it a few days. I want to do more days on the Anytime after 80 years old it's probably okay for me. So I got a couple of years left.
1: (laughs) I guess the larger philosophical question is, you are a natural-born entertainer and artist, so I would assume you would like to, I'm mixing metaphors here, but die with your boots on.
2: Yeah, I would love to. You know, what I mean, I'd like to die on my sleep or die on stage. I'd probably get a lot more press if I died on stage. You know I mean? yes, so if yes. I had to pick those two, I'd probably want to go on stage. You know,
1: what I mean, so. <laughs> unless you died in your bed and the bed disappeared, and then exactly. that would be yeah, yeah, I, exactly. I could see headlines now. It could yeah. work very well. Have, I know. <laughs> have you have you found that magicians, as a lot as a group, are very they're competitive, of course, but they're also are they also cooperative with each other?
2: No, not always, to be honest with you. You don't know the real truth. They're very competitive. I Yeah, there's some great friends in the business I have that we share a lot of admiration for each other. And there's also a lot of magicians that are paying my ass. You know what I mean? They just are. And I, I think it's one of those things that when you are aggressive like I am and you do have a certain amount of success, which I've been lucky to achieve, that wears on people. And as you know, in any business, the jealousy and the excitement and all that, that makes a lot more stiff competition. And I think with that... You either have friends that go along with you for the ride and they really believe in you and they're also, you know, they're very honest and being honorable along with your career, or well, people that are just ticked right off and can't believe and can't understand how you got there and why you're there. You yeah, know, that, that just works for Hollywood, it works for everything, yeah. you know, whether you're a doctor at a hospital or a lawyer at a law firm. And, and, you know, when you're a little more public like that, you're easily, you can be made fun of easier too, you know, because you're, you're out there. Yeah, it it's,
1: it's human nature, so sure that's going to happen. But I, thanks yep. for—I appreciate the honest answer. That, yeah, I think magicians, more than any other group, are in some ways cooperative. They share secrets and they have the the meetings and all of that kind of stuff with the magic circle. But at the same time, there are always humans in any group that just don't wish you
2: well. That's right. No, so, no, of course not. It, and it yeah. happens with everywhere, and that's fine. You know, and I think the reason why that happens a lot is because. Whatever profession you're in, or whatever you know genre you're in, I think it's because that person hasn't fulfilled maybe their dreams or success yet. And when you're happy, you can make other people happy. And right. when you're not, it's not as always easy. And I understand that. You know what I mean? So I think that's that's a lot of it. But yeah. but it's life, and you just kind of gotta put your boots on every day and, and hit the pavement and make the best of it.
1: Yeah, you're, I don't want to say you're a workaholic, but you're not shy from hard work.
2: Oh, I'm not at all. I have no problem getting my hands dirty and doing. And that's the thing when I do a show. I know everything from accounting to loading into a theater to lighting and to also walking on stage, which which is a lot. Because when you produce your own shows like I do, not always, but I know where the money needs to go and should go. So when I am at the end of the day figuring out where the money went, I go, hold on, why did we pay for this? We, we don't need that. Where's a lot of people who don't and haven't done that, don't know if that's the right fee or amount. They, sometimes they get taken for a lot of money for certain things. Yeah, that's you know. the
1: business side of of magic, which a yep. lot of magicians, unfortunately, don't know. And no. you you obviously do, because you've been able to work all these different functions and get a sense of it. I mean, ideally, it's great to have other people do it for you. But if you have to, you know how to do
2: it. So oh, it 100%, works it out. And I think yeah. as you get older and more successful, you do have people do that stuff for you. But at least when you check your books, or you check the spreadsheet, or when you come in and there's 17 crew, you go, I don't, I need two crew, I don't need 17, you know what I mean? Like, right. So, and this it, girl looks fancy, it sounds fun, all these people working for you, but they're doing nothing, and at the end of the day, you're the one that's bringing in the money, and therefore, yeah, somebody's got to pay these people, you know, yeah. and that's you, it's yep. your salary. Oh, yeah.
1: I always thought about another thing regarding, I meant to ask you once when you were on the show and, and didn't, and so I'm going to ask you now, have you thought about developing your own illusions in the sense of, not necessarily just for the show, but also to commercially make them available?
2: I have. You know, I've, got, I've put out four or five tricks in the magic community that I've invented and come up with, you know, but it's usually stuff I don't want to sell. I got a big pet peeve in our business nowadays. I always call it the YouTube magician. I can say this, I've been on YouTube for a long time now, but, but this new generation, they'll create a trick, do it on YouTube, have it out for a week or three weeks, and they cannot wait to make it and sell them and give them to everybody. and. And do they want to profit off that? Well, you're not going to make that much money off selling a trick. Maybe ten grand, maybe twenty, but it's not going to be life changing. It's not two million or five million, which could change your life. And I see a lot of these young kids; they just want to create something and then get rid of it. And with magicians, the coolest thing about magicians in my era, a way back era, is that when they had an act or a trick, they never sold it, never disclosed it. You might have figured out how it was done because you work with them and you see them. But that act was their act, and they never shared how it was done. And they died with that act. And, and there, was no, there was no money or monetary uh, amount that they would ever do to give that away or sell it. And nowadays, it seems like all these magicians invent something in two weeks and get rid of it. And, and then the whole world's doing it, and there's no ownership to it, which is lovely. But back in the old days, you'd create an idea and then go on the road, and you'd get booked because you created such a cool idea, and you'd work for a lifetime. You know? right. so it's changed a lot. And some of these kids, I mean, work through these tricks to a point where the tricks are okay, but they're not really that great just yet. So it's, it's interesting how they they just want to be famous for inventing something versus being on stage just knowing for that effect. And,
1: and so, in that kind of situation, the mystique is gone.
2: It is. And the magician's code's gone and all that. And of course, all that's kind of gone down the tubes because of the internet. And that, you know, freedom of speech, which we all believe in, least I do, uh, but it also allows for a lot of things to be disclosed and out there in the open. But it's what it is. It's just the way the world works.
1: How do you see, now you're a working magician, you're back at the Tropicana, and it's still dealing with COVID. What do you see as the future of magic for Las Vegas?
2: Well, it's interesting because I went to work last weekend, back on the Friday last weekend, and we opened and... It was interesting. I couldn't believe it. There's only like me plus four other shows on the Strip open because of the COVID rules, the regulations from our governor, Sisolak, and everything else, and the CBC. And I was blown away. Somebody said to me, do you realize right now, today, as you walk on that stage, you're the only magician on the Las Vegas Strip that's working at the head show that's actually open right now? And I never thought in a million years I would have ever heard that. I think the first magician ever was back in 1941. It was Jack Codell who invented the Bird Act. That, and then he played the El Rancho for the, for the boys. That he was one of the only magicians. And then, of course, magicians became a thing on the strip. And then, there was, of course, Siegfried and Roy and Penn and & Teller, and the list goes on. But I said, that's pretty amazing. Have you ever thought you'd ever be like, the only magician doing a show on one night or the weekend or whatever on Las Vegas strip? And this weekend, the same thing. I said, never in a million years. Never in a million years have I ever, ever thought of that. Where magic has advanced. And without Vegas, magic wouldn't have advanced, I don't think. Without what Siegfried and Roy did and Lansford and all those guys.
1: But do you I think, think it does have a future,
2: though, right? Oh, it does have a future, I think. Well, you know, I think the key is this vaccine. I mean, humans, we forget so fast. We, you know, we somebody passed away from cancer, and then all of a sudden, we're smoking again. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm not going to smoke. Oh, I'm going to smoke. You know, somebody gets drunk, hit by a drunk driver. I'm not going to drink again. They drink again. So we have all these reminders of things that are dangerous for us, that aren't good for us. And then long as we find a Band-Aid, what I, this is my opinion, of course, like the vaccine, and supposedly it does work properly, that I think people will go great. We got a vaccine now. And I literally think because the way humans work, between six months and a year after that's out and masks aren't mandated and all this other stuff is, I think we'll go right back to living our lives the way we used to because we're just, we're humans. We just, we just kind of go, well, I want to do this, I want to do that, you know, and we're selfish.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Murray the Magician performing in the Laugh Factory at the Tropic Las Vegas Thursdays through Sundays at 4 p.m. For ticket information, go to troplv.com. And for everything about Murray the Magician, Go to MurraySawChuck.com, and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at MurraySawChuck. Murray, thanks for being on the show again.
2: Ira, thanks for having me on. You know, you're always a guest at my show. You know, we've been friends for a long, long time now, and I do wish you well and wish you happy holidays and all that good stuff.
1: I appreciate it. See you next time.
0: You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ivor David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world.